Last of all the eastern force to stand firm were the dwarves of Belagost, and thus they won renown, for the Nalgrim withstood fire more heartily than either elves or men, and it was their custom, moreover, to wear great masks in battle hideous to look upon, and those stood them in good stead against the dragons. And but for them, Glaurung and his brood would have withered all that was left of the Noldor, but the Nalgrim made a circle about him when he assailed them, and even his mighty armor was not foolproof against the blows of their great axes. And when in his rage Glaurung turned and struck down Azagal, lord of Belagost, and crawled over him, with his last stroke Azagal drove a knife into the dragon's belly, and so wounded him that he fled the field. guys hey welcome back to keep on tolkien i'm danny J. this is joel n and today we're we got a exciting episode planned for you joel's way too fucking excited about this episode <laughs> I'm, I'm like shaking in my chair <laughs> today we've got an exciting episode i think this is going to be the first of two parts about the dwarves of middle earth yeah <laughs> finally for joel the dwarves it's, yeah it's time it's joel. time i wanted i wanted to talk about them so badly Joel's goal with this episode is to have me have more respect for the dwarves. And as a, he wrote this beautiful outline, it took him like a day and a half because he's crazy and it, he loves this shit. So when I was going over the outline, I, I did I did gain a little respect for the dwarves. Yeah. And I hope uh, the rest of our listeners may as well. Yeah. Because uh, they do some cool shit and we don't hear much about it. No. No, we don't. So let's get into some basics then. Um, today we're going to be talking about the dwarves, like we said. Who are the dwarves? Well, they're one of the main races of people in Middle-earth, you know, along with elves and men. Uh, we didn't actually include orcs on that list. Orcs or, or hobbits, right? Or because hobbits, because those are both more or less offshoots. They're of, offshoots, yeah. Of orcs, men and, orcs and are yeah, mutated uh, elves, and hobbits are, they even say by their own reckoning that they're an offshoot of the big people, though they don't remember how they're related. So one of the main races... Um, they're short folk, not as short as hobbits, uh, but they're bearded, stubborn, often friendly with the hobbits, however, and sometimes men, but oftentimes suspicious of the elves. Yeah. The dwarves and the elves have never had good relations. Well, there were times when they did, but sometimes traditionally they, they don't. No. Um, they also like most dwarves. They love mining and crafting and creating things. They're good smiths. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about, uh, when and how the dwarves came to be, some characteristics in their culture. We're going to talk a lot about the language, Kuzdul, which is one of Tolkien's made-up languages. And uh, we're also going to talk about some of their kingdoms and the conflicts that arise in those kingdoms. So let's get into some names. Names for the dwarves. Go for it, Joel. So some different terms for the dwarves. You've obviously got the dwarves. Um, then you've got their very first original name, the Khazad. That's the Kuzdul term they have for themselves. There's also the Hadhodrim which is the Sindarin word for the dwarves. Then we have Kasari, which is Quenya, Quenya word for dwarves. And then uh, we have Naugrim, which uh, means the stunted people in Sindarin. And then this one, which I had no idea, and I really like this one, the Auleonar, right? Yeah. Auleonar, which is uh, Quenya for the offspring of Aule, which you'll learn all about that in a second here. 
So like the elves, the dwarves, they're portrayed as a, a really ancient race of people. They awoke before the existence of the sun and the moon even. So they've been around for a long time. And they were created during the years of the trees, before elves or men. And unlike elves and men, the dwarves were not originally counted among the children of Iluvatar. Right. Because they were created not by Iluvatar, but by the Vala Aule. Aule. Aule the smith. And I've actually, when we, were, when we were looking into this, I found some kind of conflicting answers on whether or not they are now considered yeah, children of Ilavatar. Some people say they're not. Some people say they're like the adopted children of Ilavatar. Yeah, I heard, I was at least in the camp that they were, uh, like Ilavatar had adopted them. Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. I guess I kind of figured that's what it was. Right, yeah. Let's not exclude, you know what I mean? Right. Let's, let's not be racist. So similar to men, uh, the, the dwarves, they don't have an official... There isn't any canon about what happens to them after they die. Yeah, it's unknown. The elves, they go to Valinor, as we know, and the men have some unknown fate beyond the world that was uh, gifted to them by Ilavatar. But the dwarves actually believe that after they die, their spirits move to the howl, howl, the halls that Aule had created for them, set aside, and that their role would be to rebuild Arda after the final battle. I thought that was cool. Yeah, that's really cool. I didn't even realize that there was going to be a rebuilt world after the final battle. Right, yeah. It's the dwarves' world, apparently. Yeah, it's it's the age of the dwarf (laughs) has come. (laughs) (laughs) The time of man is over. Is over. (laughs) So a little bit about where the dwarves came from. Uh, We got to go into a little bit of back information on... Aule and Melkor, because mm-hmm. that's kind of where it all started. Yeah, of the uh, of the of the Valor, Aule was probably the most similar in thoughts and powers to Melkor. They uh, ha- like to fashion artful and original things. Yeah, they both really liked making stuff. They're both creative folks. Yeah, and they also came to create, quote unquote, quote unquote, create beings of their own. But Aule strove to be true to the original intent of the music of the Ainur, basically the way of life that. Ilavatar had intended, and uh, Melkor was not so much that way. Melkor wanted to control and subvert things, whereas Aule, you know, strove to make things good and submitted his works to Ilavatar. Yeah, yeah, he followed the song. Mm-hmm. Well, I suppose Melkor was following the song too, but he was just following, following the part, his, his the part that he wrote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was always jealous of the creations of others, and he'd try to twist and destroy them just to to make mockery of them. But yeah, there was there's a strife between Aule and Melkor, um, both before and after the creation of Arna. Yeah, Aule would create something and Melkor would smash it down, and Aule would create something else and Melkor would fuck it up. It it was kind of a back and forth for a long time. Well, Aule he made the Aule made the lamps, right? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. and then Melkor cast down the lamps, and the the casting of the lamps even like scorched the earth and fucked some stuff up. So yeah, see, uh, episode uh, what what episode was that? Episode five. Yes, Melkor. five yeah. Melkor. Check it out. So as the Valar are, are basically preparing the world for the coming of the children of Ilavatar, I mean, it takes time. They're not really sure when it's going to come around. And Aule is desperate for pupils unto whom he can pass his knowledge. And he was unwilling to wait for the emergence of the of the children of Ilavatar. He was just getting too impatient. He got, so he got baby fever. Yeah, he really, yeah, he really wanted. I don't know, like an offspring to teach and yeah, I mean, who does raise? Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe that's like a pet for him. He really wanted a puppy. <laughs> I just want a dog, Dad. So that's when he created his own race of beings in secret whom he called the Khazad. And this is sometime before the Year of the Trees, uh, 1000. Yeah, so this is really, really early. 
this is before elves or men have come around. Um, so Auli created the seven fathers of the dwarves first, and presumably there's six spouses, because six of them had spouses. And uh, of the seven, the only one who has a name that we know of is Durin, and he's the eldest. Yeah, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the name of Durin. However, uh, Auli did not have the power to give independent life to his creations, so they could only act when his thought was on them. I'm trying to think of a good comparison. If any of you guys are familiar with the Weeping Angels, I suppose it's kind of like the opposite. Right. Yeah, the opposite of the Weeping Angels. Very good, Joel. Very good. <laughs> then, uh, so Ilavatar actually confronts Aule, and he asks him why he would seek to exceed his power and authority by attempting to make cre- uh, create new life. So it's essentially like, bro, what's going on here? Yeah, this is, this is beyond you. Like, it didn't even work properly. Like, when your thought's not on them, they don't even do anything. They just, like, stop working. Yeah. Like, this obviously isn't working out. You're not supposed to be doing this. Yeah, I mean, that's like you walk in on a kid baking a cake. You know what I mean? Like a baby making a cake. Like, what are you, what are you doing here, man? <laughs> like, explain yourself, you know? You, you know you can't do this. You know, I was going to make cake for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, Aule being a good person, he, he repented. I mean, he realized he overstepped his bounds and he was impatient. Um, assuming that uh, the dwarves should be destroyed because they really weren't supposed to be made in the first place, he meant to smite down the Seven Fathers with his great hammer that he used all the time. But kind of like a story of... Yeah, the old uh, Isaac and Abraham. Isaac and Abraham. Story. Yeah, Ilvatar stopped Aule's hand before he swung the hammer down at them, and he gifted the dwarves with their own spirits. So now the dwarves were truly alive because Ilvatar had adopted them. Yay. And accepted Auli's beings. So I'm I'm one of the ones that subscribes to that they are the adopted, ad- the adopted yeah. children of Ilavata because he's the one that gave them their spirits. Right, yeah. Without them, uh Auli would have to they would essentially be like automatons and Auli would have to constantly be controlling them. Right. Yeah. Right. He'd be like devoting his consciousness to That'd be weird. Yeah, being a race of people? I don't. Yeah, that is really strange. So <laughs> good on Ilavatar for making them independent. So because Aule did not have a clear idea of what the children of uh, Ilavatar would be like, and because the chaos caused uh, by Melkor, because at this point, Melkor's already started to fuck the world up. Yeah, so this is during the years of the trees when they've basically, the Valov already had a lot of strife with Melkor. Yeah. And so they kind of gave up and left him to Middle-earth to his own mm-hmm. devices. Yeah. And they're over in Valinor with the light of the trees and just living good lives. So yeah. So in light of that, Middle uh, Earth is not a good place. Yeah, it's not. It's a rough. It's a rough hood. There's a lot of monsters and demons and things. Yeah. So in light of that, he made them shorter and stockier than elves and men. Um, they're also proud and stern creatures, and they're very strong and they have great endurance. They're able to withstand both heat and cold. Uh, they're great metal workers, smiths, stone workers. They're also able to learn new artisan skills really, really quickly. Yeah, they could, they have that perk that allows them to right. They've to, got that intelligence to boost. skill up faster. Uh, they're fierce in battle. They're particularly resilient to the domination of others. Yeah, they kind of do their own thing. They're very self-sufficient. Yeah, and it also they mean that uh, in a magical sort of sense too, as we'll get into. Oh, yeah. A little bit with the, the Rings of Power. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fiercely loyal to their friends, and they had really long lifespans, about 250 years. So, yeah, we were talking. That's uh, that's around the same lifespan as, like, a third-age Dunedain. 
Yeah, these yeah. the dwarves are like the cockroaches of. I mean, <laughs> wow. <laughs> so Joel loves so, the dwarves so much, but now they're cockroaches. I, I mean, see. I don't mean that in the negative sense. I mean that in more, a good uh, way. I'm, I get it. No, I mean they're they're just resilient motherfuckers that they're hard to get rid of. You sure, know? sure. <laughs> okay, so most dwarves, including dwarves women, they had thick, luxurious beards, which they took great pride in. They often forked them or braided them or tucked them into their belts. Female dwarves, this kind of gets into that whole debate on whether or not there are female dwarves. <laughs> right. yeah. Because they actually look and sounded so much like male dwarves that most non-dwarfish folk couldn't even tell the difference. Mm-hmm. And that that is canon. I yeah. know I know there has been some question about that in certain places. Mm-hmm. And that that is actually canon. There are dwarf women, and yeah. they look so much like men that people can't tell the difference. Yeah, and uh, I think Peter Jackson did well with that information, making that goofy scene in uh, the extended edition, where they cover the maybe it's the beards. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, it's was, actually it real. It's a it's a it's a goofy scene, but it's actually uh, canon, guys. Yeah. So the dwarf women, they're also very few in number among the the population. Yeah, about a third. Of all dwarves or women? I think it's just less than that, actually. Or just a, a little less than a third, yeah. Yeah, so that's very few. They seldom adventure outside of their own halls, so they're usually always indoors. Uh, there's There are a few dwarven female warriors out there, but not many of them. Uh, but tales say that the female dwarves were as fierce as their male counterparts, and even more so when protecting their families and offspring. Yeah. So you got like a mama bear. Pissed off dwarf women, man. I wouldn't want to fuck with them. That's for sure. And like most women in Tolkien, there are very few that have any names, and there's only one female dwarf that Tolkien ever mentions a name of. And that's Dees, the mother of Feely and Keely. So I think that's... That's Thorin's sister. Sister, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they're Feely and Keely are his sister sons. So a little bit about their the dwarves' clothing that they would choose to wear. They often favored simple, durable clothing. Uh, they liked to wear colored hoods and heavy cloaks for traveling, and they liked belts of gold and silver. However, in battle, their soldiers would have elaborately crafted armor helmet, and helmets made in styles that were trademarks of uh, dwarven crafting. And their armor often included a face mask, which is actually similar to the ones that they used in their forges. Right, yeah, like the ones that smiths would wear, which is why they were so good against yeah. dragons. And they were, yeah, exactly. And they were quote hideous to look upon. Yeah, scare <laughs> tactics. It's a you know two birds with one stone. And in battle, their main weapons were axes, but they also used bows and swords sometimes, and shields and mattocks. And a mattock is, uh, in case you're wondering, we looked this up because we weren't. Yeah, we didn't sure. really know what a mattock was. We're like, yeah. what the hell is that? It's basically a weaponized version of a pickaxe. Yeah. It's yeah. got, like, one big pick on one end. Yeah. So, yeah. You can imagine. I mean, they use pickaxes to great uh, to great effect. I imagine they could kill quite effectively yeah. using them in as battle. well. That, sound, that seems like a really good zombie weapon. Yeah. To really break the skull. Yeah. If a zombie ever, if Tolkien ever crossed with zombies, it would be, uh, I think the dwarves would come out on top. Yeah. So, when Auli originally completed creating the dwarves... That's when he began instructing them in a language that he himself had made for them. And that language was called Kuzdul. Kuzdul. And I really like Kuzdul because there's not much known about it. No, it's a very small vocabulary compared to the other languages that Tolkien had made. Uh, there's over 20,000 Sindarin words. I, learned I did that. not know that. Yeah, that's crazy. Because, I mean, Tolkien's uh, a uh, philologist. Yeah. So languages are what he did. Oftentimes he built his 
language first, and then he built his stories about the race of people that spoke that around, language yeah, around, around it. Yeah. So on Coup's Duel, I'm I was I was super excited about it, but there's just not much known out there. There's very few instances where it's actually written or spoken because we'll get into it actually. Yeah. And Coup's Duel is actually uh, based on the Semitic languages like uh, Hebrew and Arabic. Yep. And very so much got, like him. Yeah, very much so. And it's only it has a limited vocabulary. Tolkien mentioned that he only developed the language to a certain extent. So like as much as he needed to use it, essentially. Basically, yeah. So he didn't develop it as fully as he did, like we mentioned, Sindarin or Quenya. Mm-hmm. And the dwarves kept the language secret. They were very closed up. Like dwarves don't teach people to speak Kuzdal. Yeah, like, I think that was one of his excuses. Well, maybe not an excuse so much as part of his. As to why it's not super widespread. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The dwarves are super protective of their language. Yeah. Like if you if you start dealing with dwarves at all, they will learn your language before they won't teach you their language. They'll they'll be like, yeah. Don't worry, we'll learn your language. Yeah, they literally do not speak Kuzdul with anyone other than dwarves. I think there's only one known instance when they speak it with an elf, but yeah, that it just doesn't happen. Um, there's only a few examples of the uh, of Kuzdul being used, and one of them is the battle cry of the dwarves, which goes as such: Baruch Chazad, Chazad I Menu which means axes of the dwarves. The dwarves are upon you. And apparently it's supposed to be super terrifying when yeah. you get a bunch of them together screaming that. Yeah, yeah, screaming unintelligible languages in battle is terrifying. Yeah, especially something as harsh sounding as that. Too. Just cool, yeah. yeah. There's also the uh, the text that was written on Balin's tomb, which is Balin Fundinul Uzbad Khazad-dum, which is Balin, son of Fundin, lord of Moria. Well, lord of Khazad-dum which people call Moria. Right, yeah. That's kind of a translation of a translation. Right. <laughs> and then uh, there's also the moon ruins on the on the a map for the Lonely Mountain, but that was that was extensive. I'm not even going to get too much into that. And despite having existed for over 12,000 years, Kuzdul actually remains unchanged. And they do that out of respect for Aule, the one who taught them the language. Because it's Aule's language, and they revere Aule. And also this, this uh, it was a pretty cool thing that I didn't think of. This uh, means that there's essentially it's a universal language. So like any dwarf in the in Arda will speak Kustul, the the language of Aula. Yeah. So the dwarves they can actually communicate with each other despite being separated by super long distances that you can travel across Middle Earth, go to a completely different clan of dwarves, and despite the great distances separating them, you can still speak the same language because everybody keeps it more or less unchanged. And now we're gonna talk about something that I had. No fucking clue about. Me neither, but it was so cool. This is totally a dwarf thing. So aside from the spoken language of Kuzdul, they had their own sign language called Iglishmek. Iglishmek. Yeah. They use this as, it's a, it's a, it's a sign language. Like a, it's, a, it's a nonverbal communication. Right. They call, so in Kuzdul, they call a spoken tongue the Aglab, and they called, the, the word for sign language is Iglishmek. So they they were super secretive about their aglab, their their spoken word, but not so much about the English mech. They would use that while in public, like in front of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that kind of led to uh, the outward use of it kind of led to it to be changed among communities as language does. Yeah, it's not as universal as, as the spoken word of Kuzdul is. Mm-hmm. So a quick quote from J.R.R. Tolkien himself about English mech, the sign language. The component sign elements of any such code were often so slight 
and so swift that they could hardly be detected, still less interpreted by uninitiated onlookers. As the Eldar eventually discovered in their dealings with the Nalgrim, they could speak with their voices, but at the same time, by gesture, convey to their own folk modification of what was being said. Or they could stand silent considering something or some proposal and yet confer among themselves. So it, it sounds like a totally dwarf thing to do. Like while you're having a conversation with somebody, having like a secret like hand conversation yeah, with, with an, your friends. with other dwarves. Yeah, like this guy. He's just like talking to some guy. He's talking about his, you know, his job or mm-hmm. whatever at the bar. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds really interesting. Oh, counting must be cool. And then you just turn to your buddies. What an asshole. <laughs> with your hands, just yeah. like, this fucking... This guy's a jerk off. Yeah. Do not deal with him. <laughs> so let's jump into a little a little bit more of their, their history and what happened with the dwarves. So after Ilavatar had initially gifted the dwarves with life, he was still not willing to let the dwarves come before his firstborn children, or the elves, basically. So... Ilavatar had the seven fathers of the dwarves, and presumably their, their wives, put to sleep underground all across Middle-earth so that they would not come forth until the firstborn had awakened. So they were laid to sleep in pairs, like we said, with their wives, except for Durin. Durin was the only one who laid alone. He was laid under Mount Gundabad in the northern Misty Mountains, and we'll probably throw a map up on on the uh, social media pages so that we can we can reference where that is. So Durin was put by himself. Yeah, so check, yeah, check. Always check out the social media pages, guys. I know, I think, I feel like there's a lot more people listening than are on the Facebook page. <laughs> and it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's integral that you join the Facebook page just because we throw up a lot of maps and stuff. And it'll help you visualize a lot of what we're talking about. Aside from the fact we just like talking to you guys. Yeah, aside from we just like talking to you guys. And it's fun. Just want to like nerd out for a little bit. Just, you know, hit yeah. us up. There's a nice like talk group on there where you can post, uh, you can join and, you know, post any discussion questions you want. It's fun. It's a good time. So the dwarves being laid to sleep. So uh, two of the other dwarf fathers were laid to sleep in the north of the Arid Lewin or the Blue Mountains. So that's like the far northwestern portion of Middle Earth. And the other four were laid down in the far east in two unknown locations yeah kind of like you know the blue wizards or pretty much anything else that happens out east we don't really know much about it so shortly after the elves are awakened uh about uh, about a century about 100 years uh after in uh, around uh, 1150 uh, year of the trees mm-hmm. this is when uh they're allowed to finally they say be roused but i kind of don't like that <laughs> like just, they woke up get the dwarf fathers all aroused <laughs> <laughs> the Aule came to arouse the Dwarf Fathers. <laughs> <laughs> now that the seven Dwarf Fathers have awoken, this is when we get the origins of, you know, the the few different lines of dwarves that we do have in Middle-earth. Uh, Durin, the Deathless, he was the first of the fathers to wake. He woke under Mount Gundabad, and he founded the line called the Longbeards. And they're basically the dwarves that we're going to hear about most any time we hear about any dwarves in yeah, Tolkien's yeah. work. Longbeards, for sure. Yeah, 99% of the yeah, time. Yeah, that's the, like the house of Durin. So. The two that awoke in Arid Lewin, or the Blue Mountains, for those of you who don't speak Elvish, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, they founded the lines of uh, the Broadbeams and the Firebeards. And the forefathers who woke way out east, they founded the lines of the Iron Fists, the Stiffbeards, the Blacklocks, and Stonefoots. And we don't hear jack shit about any of them. Except for that one time. We'll get to it. <laughs> There's one time, yes. 
Oh, it's so exciting. Uh, so, so like we said, Dewar and woke first, and he wandered and wandered around until he came to the place that became known as Azanolbazar. Yeah, we've come across this one before, you know. Azanolbazar. <laughs> Azanolbazar. The dual words are hard. <laughs> but that's the dual word for the Dimril Dale, that uh, dale that's right outside the eastern gate of what we know as Moria. And yeah, he looked into the lake there, which uh, they then called... Keldzaram, which uh, is also known as the Miramare in the common tongue. In the common tongue, yeah. So as uh, it comes to be known, uh, Durin the First, or Durin the Deathless, he gets to this place, and he looks down into the Miramare, and he sees a reflection of himself bearing a crown of seven stars. The, the seven stars were actually a constellation known in the future as Durin's crown, and the elves call it Valakirka. Kirka. Remember, the sea is always hard. The sea is always hard. I the can't sea forget that. Is always hard in Elvish. <laughs> the constellation of the men was called the Big Bear, but it was an actual constellation that he saw over his head. But he took that as a sign to build his kingdom there, and that is where Durin the First founded the city of Khazad Dum in those natural caves beneath the three mountain peaks there, which are known to us as Karadras. Kelebdil and Fenudol. That last one was difficult. In yeah. Kuzdul, uh, in Kuzdul, the dwarves called them Baron Zinbar, Zaragzigl, and Bunda Shathur, respectively. Yeah, the elders' names are slightly less difficult to say. <laughs> I like Zaragzigl. <laughs> I like Zaragzigl, though. That's one of my favorite Kuzdul words ever. I love it. Beneath the peak of Zaragzigl. That's Bun- where that's where uh, Gandalf kills the Balrog. Right. Oh yeah, that is. On Zarek Siegel. Yeah. I figured out. I, I knew I'd heard that before somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm connecting dots, guys. This is exciting. Hell yeah. So Kazadum was the only one of the dwarf mansions to survive the first stage. Um, it grew po- prosperously throughout Durin's life, which was so long that he actually earned the name Durin the Deathless. Yeah, what a badass name. He, ru- he ruled for a long time. Uh, the name was also a reference to the fact that the dwarves, at least the Longbeards anyway, Durin's folk, they had a belief that Durin would be reincarnated like seven times throughout his family line. Mm-hmm. And this is uh this is Dalai Lama rules. So like it's the it's the same like person, but they're different people, you know. Right, right. Yeah, we actually had to have an extensive conversation <laughs> about this to figure out what they meant. Because yeah. it's not because they actually end up they say that there were actually at least five recorded Durins, mm-hmm. um, at least by the third age, and they were named Durin because they were literally born so much to the likeness of Durin yeah. that they assumed it was one of his incarnations. Yeah, which is, yeah, it was just exactly, yeah, it's Dalai Lama rules, man. Right. Yeah, yeah, if, it's you, not, if you it's know not how like... the Dalai Lama works, you know how the dwarves work, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> or you know how Durin works, I guess. So that's pretty much everything that happens in the years of the trees. This is before the sun and the moon, that everything that happened has been happening under starlight constantly. Mm-hmm. A cool time in the age of the world. But let's get into the first age after the making of the sun and the moon. To the east of Casadu, a clan of Longbeards established the first settlement in the Iron Hills, which is a badass place. Iron Hills is one of the only dwarf kingdoms to never fall, right? Yeah, it's one of the only ones to never get, like, sacked or sieged or anything like that. And far to the west of Casadum, the great dwarvish cities of Belagost and Norograd were founded in the Arid Luin, which is the Blue Mountains again, during the first age and sometime before the arrival of the elves in Beleriand. Yeah, so the dwarves had already been in Beleriand for a while. 
Yeah, I love what uh, what meme in the children who are in the petty dwarf says when he's like, "That was before the elves came and changed all the names." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the dwarves have been there for a while, and all the ones in Belagost and Nagra, they're they're all the dwarves that we hear about in the stories during the first age mm-hmm. in Beleriand. Those are the huge fucking cities that. The yeah, those are. are the two massive cities right next to Beleriand. But uh, also, like you mentioned, meme. During the first age, this is when we come into contact with like a new race of dwarves that I had never heard about, and I don't think we ever hear about again, called no, yeah. the Petty Dwarves. Mm-hmm. In the first age, in the story of uh, the Children of Hurin. Yeah, yeah, Turin uh, comes across one of these Petty Dwarves. Comes across three of them, doesn't he? Yeah, th- well, three of them accidentally kills one of them, mm-hmm. and then, uh, yeah, they entangle, they have that whole b- the bar and Dunway thing. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know what we're talking about, guys, refer back to episode... 11 and 12, the story of Turin Turinbar. It's a sad, sad story. Yeah, it is. But and it's beautiful. There's a little petty dwarf in it, too. Yeah, so the petty dwarves, in relation to regular dwarves, I guess you could say, they were a bit smaller and a bit more feral. Yeah, feral's a good word for it. Yeah, they're thought to be descendants of uh, dwarven outcasts from the major cities nearby, Belagost and, and Nargrod. They lost most of their knowledge of smithcraft, and they're more just like scavengers. I almost would compare petty dwarves to like what we would know as like a traditional gnome. A gnome, yeah. Yeah. Like a, a garden gnome. Like a garden gnome. Yeah, we talk about that uh it's it's a it's a it's a little tricky using the word gnome when you're talking in Tolkien because if you know uh about like a little bit of the history of the story, the Tolkien actually referred to the Noldor as gnomes because it comes from the uh the Greek word gnosis, which means to know. Yeah. Originally, his original term for the Noldor were the gnomes. They were like the gnomish yeah. people. So we're hesitant to use the word gnome. I'm sorry, but I just... That, <laughs> but that that's kind of what they are, like yeah. a garden gnome. Yeah. yeah, like a garden gnome. It's the most likely comparison I could think of for a petty dwarf. Like an evil fucking garden gnome. Yeah, they're kind of assholes, too. They're, yeah. They, they kept the those, stubbornness. The, the interesting thing, though, is they eat those roots that ever, that nobody else knows about, remember? I don't remember that, no. They like uh, they, it, they It's supposed to be like a potato or something. Because when they capture him, all the, they're like his band of outlaws or whatever is like all he's got in this sack is these roots, and it's like oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. he's like a mount gathering food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dwarves of Belagost were actually the first to start forging mail of linked rings, and they also traded weaponry with the Sindar. They also carved the thousand caves of Menegroth for the uh, current Sindarin elf king Thingol. I love yeah. Thingol. Yeah, Thingol's great. They were the only people able to withstand the dragon fire in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. And that's that's linking back to the opening excerpt. That's what the o- opening excerpt was about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the king, uh, the death of King Osgal. Yeah, in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, if you guys all remember, there's uh, the big conflict with the dragons. Because mm-hmm. this is when Morgoth really released his dragons. The only ones that were really able to deal with the dragons were the fucking dwarves. Mm-hmm. Because they had their armor and their face masks. Yeah, and it's actually really sad when King Azagal dies. They literally bear him up and they sing and they leave. Yeah, like mid-battle. Like this mid-battle. is a huge slaughter going on right now. And in the middle of all this, they just take the time. The dwarves are just... Yeah, and they just... Sparing their, body, the, their king's body away. And they just parade off the field and that's it. That's all for the dwarves. Yep. I mean, I suppose they did a good amount of work getting rid of the dragon. Yeah, yeah they, they, f- they made Glaurin fuck off, that's for sure. Now, so those were the, the dwarves of Velagost. The dwarves of Nagrod just uh, down the mountain range from them. They were they were the dwarven colony where we 
we get the uh, famous dwarven smith known as Telkar. Yeah, yeah, Telkar. And he's responsible for Narsil uh, and Angrist, which was the knife that uh, that um, Baron stole from Kurufin to cut the Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth. And also the dragon helm of Norloman. Yeah, yeah, Turin Turinbar's helmet. Yeah, they talk about how when Turin wore that helmet, it had like a, a bit of a face mask on it too, and it was really terrifying in battle. Yeah, it scared the shit out of people. It's a dwarvish helmet. Yeah, and that's what allowed him to get so close to Glaurung uh, when, you know, they were fighting him. Oh, yeah, right before the fall of Nagrod. That's why he was the... Or Nagrathron, I'm sorry. Yeah, he has his sword, like, literally up in the air, man, and he's, like, ready to strike him, remember? Well, before he even gets frozen, when they go up to, like, him and some elves go up to, like, assail them, and then they all get destroyed. Well, that's right. They all get destroyed, and then he's the only one that survives. Right, because yeah. he has the dragon helm, I guess, that saved his mm-hmm. face. It saved him. It'd be kind of weird to see a seven-foot-tall man in a dwarf mask. It would be terrifying. <laughs> that would be very terrifying. <laughs> it's funny because of the uh, three things that we mentioned that Telkar made, uh, Narsil, Angrist, and the dragon helm of Dorloman, two of those three things broke. Yep. Yeah, Narsil broke under uh, Landil when he fell. And Angrist uh, broke as it was trying to get that second Silmaril, that sweet, that sweet bonus Silmaril. <laughs> I honestly, I, I might have continued to try to get it with even like the shards that were yeah, there. Was like, oh, God. Yeah. Well, that's, I don't think it's that the knife broke so much as that it hit Morgoth in the face and cut him open, remember? Oh, that's right. And he yeah. stirred in he his stirred. sleep. Everyone stirred in their sleep. Yeah, that's everybody right. stirred. Oh, that was a tense moment. Mm-hmm. See, episode, what is that? What episode is that now? Baron and Luthien. Eight and nine? I think so. I think it's eight and nine. God, Check. we've got so many under our belt now. It's getting yeah. hard to remember. It's hard to reference back to these episodes now. <laughs> now, the the dwarves of Nargrod, not only do we get Telkar from them, but uh, this is where we get some negative stuff with the dwarves. They were, the dwarves of Nargrod were also the ones responsible for the slaying of King Thingol uh, for, out of out of greed of the, the, the Nalglamir, if you guys yep. remember the Nalglamir. And they're also the ones responsible for sacking. right. Doriath. Sacking Doriath the first time. Mm-hmm. It gets sacked again. That's right. <laughs> Later on. <clears throat> By a different set of assholes. But yeah, yeah. Completely different set of assholes. But both dwarf kingdoms, uh, Nargrod and Belagost, were eventually destroyed along with nearly all of Beleriand in the War of Wrath. And pretty much all the refugees from those kingdoms settled in Khazadum, which was the only surviving one. And that's, uh, that's how the population of Khazadum really went up. Because you got all those refugees from out west that traveled east. And that was the next major dwarvish kingdom. And I think it was the oldest. Because I think that uh, Khazad-Dum yeah, yeah. was around before Belagost and not. I think it was, yeah. I think it is the oldest. I think it's the OG. Yeah, it's the OG dwarf kingdom. And it's also massive. Like, they're constantly making Khazad-Dum bigger all the time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that brings us up to the end of the first stage. And I think uh, that brings us to the end of part one. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break between episodes here. Kind of split it up nicely. But uh, we hope you guys will come back for the second part about the dwarfs. There's some really epic things. Some that really cool stuff, guys. You should definitely come around and check it out. But yeah, that's uh, that's all for for this week. Uh, tune into the next episode for the conclusion. This has been Keep On Tolkien, and uh, I'm Joel N. And I'm Danny J. And as always, keep, keep on, on Tolkien. Aure in Tuluva. <laughs>